Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Thinking Fan Football Premier League Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, I'm joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel and coach David Seymour and professional footballer Dre Fortune. I'm host Chris Mumford. Bella Chow. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page book for those mad about football, Moneyball for Soccer, Opposition Analysis Plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Match day 25 seems like, well, we're getting more of the same. But there are some twists. So today we're going to do a deep dive on those twists and resulting open spots. Finally, we're going to have another gentleman's discussion about what changes we would make to VAR. So this week was pretty interesting in that uh, we had a fairly thuggish sort of match between Wolves and and Leeds United, and Wolves were able to squeeze a win out, um, though they were very defensive, but they played in the way you would expect Wolves to be. On the other hand, Southampton really gave a full um, helping to Chelsea um, and really kind of hitting a speed bump in the Tuchel revolution. David, can you talk a little bit about that Southampton-Chelsea game? Yeah, just I think for me, it was the, the first sort of like uh, key moment where you saw the rustiness essentially of, of Chelsea taking up a new system. And the system that Tuchel is using is very similar to what Antonio Conte used, you know, three, four years ago with Chelsea. But I think there was, there's just been. I mean, they've done, they've done superbly well. So I'm not, I'm not slating them by by any means. But they weren't in a moment of transition for the for the Minamino goal. And the one thing I noticed was that the back three was quite spread apart, and Reese James was unnecessarily high and potentially he's been told to stay high, but it's very unlikely when the left wing back was pushed forward. So you, at that moment, generally speaking, in an orthodox way, when you play the back three, you should have the four sliding around when the wing back goes to press. And that didn't happen. And so what that led to was too much space between, I think it was Zuma and Aspilicueta. And Minamino was over the time his run. And he timed it superbly. It was a really nice goal. It was a superb pass as well. But, there's an argument to be had that that wouldn't have happened had Reese James been tucked around and the rest of the four have been slightly more congested and a little bit more of a stagger. They were quite flat as well. Um, so that that's what I was sort of, I noticed a little bit in terms of uh, the, the new system that Tuchel's using. And um, but they, they showed listen they showed some steals come back into that game. I thought you know if you look at if you look at the players that are performing for Tuchel, it's interesting to see that. I think I think Mount didn't start the first two game, did he, Harshal? But I think again, he's he's proven to be like he's a cons- such a consistent performer, and I know that he gets a lot of stick for being, I think, one of Southgate's favourites for England. But I mean, he just churns out consistent performances, wouldn't you say, Harshal? Yeah, definitely. Um, he didn't start Tuchel's first game. I think it was Havertz and Ziyech who started as the sort of two number tens in that game. I. I don't know if he started every game since, but he has started the majority of games since, which is, again, basically what he used to do under Lampard as well, right? So, I mean, if there are multiple managers backing him and giving him chances, he, there's definitely something he's doing, right? And it's not a case of favoritism or whatever that a lot of people throw at him. So, you're, you're right in that sense that 
Tuchel, uh, sorry, Mount has again sort of stepped up to the plate under Tuchel. I thought it was interesting that uh, obviously the Hudson Odoi incident where he was brought on at 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 halftime and then he gets taken off and people spoken about how he didn't like his intensity and his work off the ball. I think that's a really um, I don't know if I can uh, whether to call it good or bad, but it's a statement from Tuchel there that yeah. and the first sort of public admonishment of any player or sort of public uh, statement to to basically lay out the mark uh, uh, lay down a marker to the Chelsea squad that. there are certain standards that he need, that he accepts and i mean uh and he said that i mean all was forgiven and it would be a new start for him the next day and uh, we just got the lineups for chelsea atletico which is kicking off in a bit and hudson odoi is starting that game so i'm he, hoping yeah he is known to tuchel's known to have done that before but i i didn't have an issue with it i know some people did i didn't have an issue with it so the way he spoke about it suggests that he probably already said that to hudson odoi Callum Hudson-Odoi was hearing about this by watching the the interview. But one thing that was interesting, and I haven't really heard a coach say this before, was that he spoke about Hudson-Odoi's issue um, that he's had two substitute appearances where he's come on and not impacted the game. And I think he was impatient because I think he referenced the previous time that happened and that had, uh, I think he, he was at sort of the end of his patience and he wanted to send a message a bit. Dre, have you seen anything like that as a player, like in terms of coaches talking maybe about the differences between how a player starts and how a player comes on as a sub? Because that was the first time I've seen a manager talk about it on on TV. Yeah, um, I think every player is different, obviously. And and some players tend to do better starting the game off versus coming off the bench and vice versa, which I think is why you have roles like super subs and whatnot. Um, some players are just really good coming off the bench and finding the pace of the game and, and getting themselves involved. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that that makes sense coming from Tuchel. And I mean, if if he's if he's not coming off the bench and providing what the coach wants and not getting into the game as quickly as he wants him to, because at the end of the day, when you're coming off the bench, most of the time it's you know twenty thirty minutes to impact the game. That's what that's what you're there for. So uh, if he's not providing that, then obviously you know the coach is going to look to someone else. I, I mean. It's an unfortunate circumstance, and it's because I don't think we've. I'm mean, so used to when a player comes on the field, he's on the field for the rest of the game. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, it, nobody's nobody's safe to say. You know, what I mean, it's it's yeah, eleven players on the field, and if you're not doing what the coach point. wants. That's yeah. such a good point. I th- like we we should almost normalize the fact that substitutes can be substituted because you're exactly. right. It, it shouldn't be like you come on and then that's it. It's, right. it's, it's a fair point, particularly when you get brought on. You know, early. It's not like it was yep. a. A late substitution. He was brought off ten minutes later. He had what twenty five minutes on the pitch. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, something, he, something he came like that. on at half time and went off with like twenty minutes. I don't know. I have a little different take, guys. I just think with younger players, you have to be a little more gentle with them. And um, you know, I know Chelsea needs to win now, but and confidence with young players, uh, and you know, part of the reason why he's not playing well is likely because his confidence isn't there. So. What's the one thing you don't want to do is yank a, a youngster off um, uh, and and make a fragile situation even more fragile. But hey, I'm not in the I, in the locker room. I, I, Go ahead, Dre. Yeah, I, I I agree to an extent, Chris. But I, I think I think also what you have to factor in is, I mean, they've probably had we have no idea how many conversations they had behind the scenes and whatnot, and and those play a big role. So obviously, it's going to be it's embarrassing. You know, it's not it's not something that anyone wants to go through, but. At the end of the day, um, 
you know, Tuchel's an experienced manager and I'm sure he's got the ability to properly manage that situation. So it doesn't come out too negative um, in, in Hudson Odoi's head. That, that's a good point. I, I vividly remembered uh, a time that I got benched where they explained to me why I got benched and, it, and, and I was hitting a slump and uh, you'd be darn sure as soon as I got back on the pitch, <laughs> I realized that that wasn't a, a, uh, a right, but a privilege. Uh, it, it did impact me and I was fairly. Well, I, I remember that um, De- I think Declan Rice a couple of years ago when West Ham had Manuel Pellegrini as manager and Declan Rice was just coming through. I think he got substituted at half time. Like it might have been the first game of the season against Liverpool. And a game that I'm pretty sure we got thrashed. That's normally the case when we play Liverpool. But um, he's doing all right now. So I feel like, uh, it, you know, it can be a harsh lesson for players. And sometimes they need that. And I think that, um, I think you're starting to see coaches manage younger players more. I know, like, in terms of their expectations. Mm-hmm. I saw when Spurs, a bit off topic, but when Spurs um, had Alfie Devine, Devine, not sure how you say his last name, who scored against Marine. Um, I think he dropped him straight back down to the under-18s the week after because he didn't want him to suddenly think, all right, I'm in the first team now, that's it. Interesting. Well, why don't we turn our attention to that game, which probably garnered the most interest over the weekend. And if you were wearing blue uh, in Liverpool, then you were going to party like it was 1999, uh, which was the last time that Everton defeated Liverpool twice in a season. Harshel, help us unpack what happened tactically in that game? First of all, I think, obviously, Everton played extremely well. Uh, first derby win in, I think, 12 years or something like that. 10 years, 12 years. First win at Anfield in 22 years. So, definitely, I can understand all the emotion and all the sort of celebration that we saw at full-time whistle. And uh, it's it's fully deserved. But Ancelotti... Uh, you know he's he he pulled out something again he's he's been someone who's a bit of a tactical chameleon in the sense that he doesn't he's not a, a, a manager who has had sort of one system or one philosophy to which he's been wedded to throughout his career he's always adapted to wherever he's gone he he used to be a bit more idealistic earlier on in his career uh, in his managerial career but he's become a lot more adaptive as as he's gotten older and he's as he's got more experience so it was interesting that uh, you know, Everton went with a back three, more of a back five in this game. They'd actually been playing Luca Dinia as a left winger rather than as a left back in the last few games. But here he was playing as a left wing back, um, and Seamus Coleman, uh, Coleman was the right wing back with the three centre halves. And what was interesting was that Coleman basically was doing almost a sort of man marking job on Andy Robertson, and he said almost more or less that the same thing in the post match where. His job was to shut down and uh, Andy Robertson on Liverpool's left, which is why when Everton, uh, sorry, when Liverpool had the ball in on the left hand side, he would push up and try to press Robertson. When it was on the opposite flank, he would tuck in and Dinia would be the one to go forward. And that system worked really well. I thought Tom Davies had a brilliant game in defensive midfield. Abdullah Dukure and Andre Gomez were a little off the pace, although Dukure, I think, had a much better game than Gomez, but. Tom Davies was absolutely brilliant. He 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 was everywhere. He uh, in terms of mopping up uh, Liverpool attacks, positional sense was really good. And I thought when Everton had the ball, he was the one player other than James Rodriguez, at least in central areas, who was showing for the ball at every moment. He was 
putting himself in areas to pick up possession from the center backs or from the wing backs and his and he was then laying it off with the first or second pass he wasn't dwelling on it too much so that kept the tempo of everton's play really high and i i think of course if he can keep this up he's got a shout to be on the plane for the euros because england i think are a little bit one paced i think in in central midfield with i mean you have declan rice calvin phillips jordan henderson probably going and i would probably put Tom Davies on the plane because not I mean obviously if he keeps the if he keeps his form up because he he can be a very good point of difference in in the England midfield but yeah would you would you put him in over Bellingham ah that's a difficult one obviously Bellingham has been playing really well for Dortmund but mm. it's the age uh, and I am not going to say that he's too young and he's obviously playing at a really high level in the Bundesliga and in the uh, Champions League and all of that but. it's about the kind of profile that uh, that uh, england want in midfield and i think that maybe with the likes of mount and you know delish is probably going to go obviously they play a bit higher up the pitch but they have that sort of profile of player similar to bellingham in an ex- to an extent covered davies is someone i think with the energy that he has in midfield and the ability to also obviously play but he can break lines as well i don't think you have that with either philips or rice to a large extent so so, so i i might respect, get more respectfully respect i've got to disagree there because i think that i think I, i agree tom davies i thought was outstanding but i don't think that he's bringing anything to england that isn't already there whereas i see bellingham as england's regardless of age england's best number 8 and like an actual proper number 8 because i wouldn't classify jordan henderson as number 8 and i think if you play jo- uh, mason mount in that you're crowbarring him in a little bit. And I think that Mason Mount could do it, but we're talking about a player who's actually at a number 8. Like it's basically Jude Bellingham and he has been fantastic for Dortmund. So um I would want yeah, to see uh, more from Davies over yeah. a longer period of time. No, absolutely. That yeah. conversation. Absolutely. I, as I said, I mean this is just one game. He needs to keep his form going for the rest of the season. So which would then probably make it more difficult for Southgate. At the moment yeah, definitely Bellingham well, definitely. Speaking goes of England, Chris, I was a uh, pretty I, i've i've gone after him a few times i'll be honest with you but i was pretty impressed with um john pickford on the weekend and i just wondered well first of all I'd like to know your take on it but then also do you think that he is still england's number 1 not nick pope i think it's uh you know really depends do you like some paprika with your chocolate ice cream because that's what <laughs> what kind of a saying is that well Pickford's going to make some just ridiculously awesome saves and then he's going to do a howler. And it's like is that what you want in your risk reward profile? And I actually think that spiced chocolate ice cream's fabulous if you're prepared for it and you have the stomach to handle it. And I just wonder if um Southgate's that's the profile of of player he wants. I mean, I absolutely am so impressed with his shot stopping. I'm so impressed with his distribution which I would argue is maybe just a half notch below Ederson and maybe half notch above Schmeichel in in terms of distribution just spot on pinpoint distribution. Um so it really kind of depends on 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 what flavor. I think 3 or 4 months ago I would have said Pope's the guy but uh Pickford's had a nice run of games uh and is Uh, expected goals against he's had 
I think he's at around two or three in terms of prevented goals, which puts him in the top five um, for the Premier League. Um, and that's good because most of the people that inhabit that top five are folks that are in the lower quartile of the Premier League. Um, so he's he, he's doing well on that account. What what flavor ice cream is Nick Pope? <laughs> I think Nick is this. He's going to give you what you expect. And, and oh, so he's vanilla. Basically, vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do That's vanilla with with a, let's call it cookies and cream, right? Because okay. he does have some, but he he in my mind he doesn't have the the oh my god how did he save that in in his bag consistently um and i'm not sure why that is uh but maybe it's because he he does a lot of things right but sometimes you see allison make some stuff it's like okay allison doesn't look that athletic but he just made a crazy save there and i think that comes down to anticipation so um but there's nothing bad i can say about pope it's just that that extra gear about making that one crazy save a game that you just don't expect. And that single goal can make a difference in a win and a, win and a loss. Dre, what was your take on the Liverpool-Everton game? I just thought Everton were fantastic. I mean, I thought they, they defended well. They had their clear tactics outlined and I just thought that they executed flawlessly. I mean, the, the first goal, I, I, I love Thomas's position in there and in two, three touches, he brings the ball down and, uh, feeds a phenomenal pass through to Richarlison and you know there are question marks about the defending from Liverpool the the new center back uh, Kabak I think is his name but I mean I, I think all credit goes to the attack in there um, that's that's what you want to see from your number 10 and that's the kind of run you want to see from your number nine and then even on the second goal um, Calvert-Lewin does phenomenal to break through from from deep in his half uh, to go and support Richarlison and then earns a penalty and, and they convert so I thought I thought Everton had a really good game yeah, you know, I'm trying to unpack the what I see with the eye and, and what I see in the stats. Um, Liverpool had 16 shots on goal. Everton had um, nine. I- I'm sorry, 16 shots in total and nine. Both teams had six shots on goal. And Everton had a 1.73 expected goals versus Liverpool's 1.32. So if you take away that PK, which is a 0.76, they're under under one. The truth is, one it's it's pretty comparable one one. I felt like that first goal was the Richarlison goal was against um, against the against the play there. Right, Liverpool was dominating a bad header out, good header in, and then great cut, and then an incredible finish. The, that goal against the run of play, of course, dramatically impacted the flow of that game. So I just really wonder how Liverpool's lost four games. The, those outcomes are certain. But in terms of are they playing poorly against that, I don't, I don't know if I buy into the popular narrative quite yet. David, you're going to say something? Yeah. I mean, don't, so you talk about expected goals, but so my opinion of – yeah, you take away the non, you know, it's non penalty expected goals you're looking at. Yeah. But had uh, the penalty not been given, or had he not been, had who was it got played for? Was it Calvert Lewin? Yeah. Calvert Lewin got played through so and had Calvert Lewin over Alexander had, What's that, mate? No, no, I was saying he got played through and stumbled over uh, Alexander yeah. Arnold. 
had Calvert Lewin not been fouled, he would have he would have got to the ball. If you watch the replay, he would have got to the ball, mm-hmm. and he was fouled. So that would have, in a, in a sense, that would have been a very high expect XG shot, but he was denied. So I think when we when we take away um, expected goal expected goal value for penalties, we have to look at I think the context that the penalty was given as well. So that was a that was a goal a goal scoring. He would have scored that chance. So I think that for my money, I thought Everton, regardless of whether you look at expected goals without the penalty, I think were the best team deserved. deserved I, also, I mean, yeah, there's also, I remember in the first half, Seamus Coleman has a header from about six yards out that that I think he's supposed to score. I mean, in terms of the chances in the game, I, Salah had one, maybe. I mean, I think Pickford did well to cover the angles. I don't really think there was much there. Um, you know, when Alden has a shot, Pickford tips over. I don't really think there were many clear-cut opportunities for Liverpool uh, that would have that should have really shifted. Rathbalat and had the the good chances. Just quickly, are we all, are we all in agreement that it was a penalty as well? Because I know Carragher, the very unbiased Jamie Carragher on the commentary team, at first said it wasn't a penalty, and I I thought it was a clear penalty. I felt like Trent definitely brought him down. He wouldn't have gone down in that situation had he not been fouled because he would have got to yeah, the ball. He would have scored. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, it may not have been intentional in the sense that, I mean, whatever he may not have been looking to trip him, but the point is that he did trip him. And I, I and I actually think it should have been a red card as well because it is a denial of uh, an obvious mm-hmm. goal-scoring opportunity there. So the referees actually messed up there by not sending Trent Alexander. Uh, Alexander. Is, that the, is that the rule these days? It is. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're basically interfering, if you're not attempting to play the ball, yeah, which Trent didn't do there. He didn't attempt mm, to play the ball. Okay. So then you do get sent off, which is why the David Luiz sending off a couple of weeks ago was upheld and all sure. of that. Sure. Okay. Just want to check. One other thing: Are we all in agreement that Klopp should not be shown the door uh, because there's a growing number? Of <laughs> that that's yeah, it's crazy. crazy. It's I, hilarious. If yeah, I mean, I, I don't. No- I don't know. I, I really do not know what to say. And quite honestly, you know, everyone's talking about that this team's done for uh, and they need to to rebuild. And I just like. I don't know if you get the if the injured guys back, that's yeah. pretty much a brand spanking new team. Uh, so I feel like Jota and Minamino comes back from Southampton with brimming with confidence. Yeah, maybe there's a couple of players they could chat about. I mean, I think a replacement for Wijnaldum, in large part, Tiago is taking that spot. So it's really a backup for a, a Tiago or um, somebody there. Yeah, for so sure. I don't, I don't know if I want to spend a lot of airplay on these just seemingly ridiculous um, notions, but it's just a personal opinion of mine. Speaking of personal opinions and personal affections, David, can you t- walk us through the West Ham Tottenham two to one win against West Ham winning over Tottenham? And there's that broad smile again. <laughs> I was literally watching like the second half from like, but I couldn't sit in the room. I was watching from the doorway because it was just so stressful. Um, we were we were lucky. We were lucky, and I think it was classic case of us sort of you know taking the chances that we had and and then defending well in that in that low block for basically the whole of the second half. And I I have my doubts a little bit over Fabianski next season just because I've started to see individual errors come into his game a little bit more this year. And I thought he had a very good game. But 
and I think this is the credit to the system that West Ham employed, is that really, other than that freak kind of like rebound that hit the post and the cane shot, nothing comes to mind, unless I'm misremembering it, but nothing comes to mind that was like a real, like, all moment. Uh, it was just a lot of tense build-up, and I thought uh, West Ham sat in really nicely, and I thought Declan Rice just, again, further added probably an extra... 10 million to his price tag. It just every game he plays, he seems to get better and better. And he ran, he ran the show for us there. So yeah, thrilled a bit, but uh, fully expecting to get thumped by City on Saturday. Is it Saturday? The weekend, whatever it is. Um, and there's something continued to be said about the big six, not having a hammer lock on all the talent. Um, West Ham's pickup, January pickup continues to contribute. Any any additional thoughts on that? Well, I think Harshall's the sure. I mean, Matt, honestly, if <laughs> if you'd asked, I was pleased that we picked him up, and I thought that I think I've said before in this podcast that I was pleased that the board clearly looked at what Moyes wanted and brought in someone that he trusted. But I did not expect Jesse Lingard to be this good. I mean, are you surprised, Harshall, as a Man United fan? A little bit, but I mean, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm not surprised in the sense that he's doing this because he he had he is a very good player. I mean, you don't play for England. What I think he has over 10, 12 odd caps probably. He was playing. He was in the England World Cup squad and all of that, right? So he's not a bad player. It's just that, and I said again, as I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that just Bruno Fernandez's arrival made it really difficult for him to get into the side because Fernandez has be- has rarely been dropped. I mean, forget Lingard. Tony Van de Beek has found it difficult to get into the side, and he's brought in over the summer from Ajax for at, you know huge fanfare and all of that. So it's not really Lingard's fault in that sense that he didn't get a look in uh, into the United squad. And it's just that uh, I think he's spoken about it in a couple of uh, post-match uh, interviews as well, that he's just been wanting to go out and play football again. And he's uh, getting the chance to, to do that at West Ham. And it is a bit of a selfish notion that he obviously wants to show how good he is, but it's benefiting West Ham. So, I mean, I don't think there's any reason for them to complain. And he looks like he's settled into the group really well. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can see that with the celebrations, with the stuff on social media and all of that, that he's formed a bond with the guys mm-hmm. out there really quick. And he is that sort of player. Uh, I mean, he's that sort of person, I think. He's someone who uh, is very jovial off the pitch as well. And he sort of brings the team together. So that's been a good addition to the side of West Ham. Uh, and yeah, I I'm not that, surprised. I saw today a rumor that, Le- I saw a rumor that Leicester potentially interested in him in the summer. So we might struggle to hold on to him. But Dre, Dre, have you ever been in a changing room without naming names where players, I guess the word is, the phrase is ulterior motive, have, have um, essentially like playing for themselves because they know they need, maybe they need, I don't know, it's probably a little bit different circumstance, but obviously Lingard's is he needs to play well to get into the England team. And so that's what he's that's really what he's paying for he's not joined west ham to contribute to west ham getting into a top four position has he he's he if west ham finished eight but he has a really good second half of the season he'll be thrilled to bits won't he so have you have you had players like in your changing room before that have had like something some a sort of similar situation and if so like how have you sort of have they fit with the squad how have you felt about it uh 100% especially i mean in our league everyone's looking to to continue to progress and, and to move forward. And obviously with the way that football is going now, stats matter so much in terms of, you know, how are you contributing, whether it's goals and assists or, you know, uh, interceptions, clearances, whatever, whatever the case may be. 
um, it's, it's difficult. You find it very difficult because obviously everyone, not everyone, but most people are geared towards team success and that kind of boosts you individually because your team was successful. Now your team is looked at in higher regard and then they start looking at the, the details of it. And so trying to get everybody on that same page so that their individual talents can show through has proven to be pretty difficult. It, it doesn't lead to, it doesn't lead to as much success as you should have or, or, or you want to have. So um, it's, it's definitely tough, but I think, you know, in his situation, everybody understands it, but if you can, if you can manage it in the way that he seems to be doing it so far, where it's contributing to the team success and it's within the, the realms of, of what your coach wants and, and your teammates can appreciate it, then all is well. But when, once you start deviating off the path and I mean, if, if he's clearly trying to score goals where, you know, he's got a teammate wide open right next to him and, you know, that kind of thing, then I think is when it becomes a, a true issue. Well, good. Well, let's, let's turn our attention. Um, Aston Villa uh, was defeated by Leicester city 2-1. Leicester keeps rolling, rolling, rolling. Uh, good story there. Uh, Man City took care of Arsenal 1-0 and, of course, I was getting my popcorn and dip already, uh, uh, thinking that in the first 90 seconds, I still had plenty of time. But lo and behold, um, Sterling scores a header at five foot seven and a half on a if he's wearing his tall boots. Uh, and um, the game, for the most part, was over, unfortunately, uh, though I did watch and it was beautiful. But. Tell us, Harshel, what, what did you see interesting from a tactical perspective in the game? I think, um, I mean, you're one of the few people who've called that game beautiful because I'm not, I, I'm not going to say it was beautiful. But there were some interesting things, but most of the reaction on social media and elsewhere has, is that, I mean, as you said, you know, the game was pretty much over after, after the first, after the goal and probably after the first 10 or 15 minutes. And I will get into some of the tactical stuff later, but that's what I found interesting, that Arsenal didn't push for an equalizer or, or, or to try to get something from the game. It almost felt as if both teams settled for a one-nil def- I mean for a one-nil scoreline and, and they were both happy for it to end that way. And that worked out really well for City, I'd say, because obviously they do get the three points, but they didn't really have to put in a lot of effort, a lot of energy into the game, which will help with the rest of the season. And Pep didn't really need to make too many changes. You know, just look at the bench. Aguero didn't need to come on. Zinchenko was on the bench. Uh, I mean, uh, Rodri didn't have to come on. With Fernandinho started the game and finished the game. Rodri didn't need to come on. For Ferran Torres was on the bench, didn't need to start, uh, uh, get any minutes. So, a lot of the players managed to get, a, 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 I wouldn't say a free weekend, but they basically didn't need to come on to the pitch. And, and that gives them a lot more energy and a lot more, uh, I'd say, a better base for the midweek game against uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach in the Champions League, which it will definitely be a much higher intensity game. Marco Rose is one of the most sort of intense pressers in 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 Europe. I, uh, so that way, yeah, it worked out really well for City, and I was a bit surprised at that. Yeah, I, I think where I found beauty is that. Arsenal's gotten pretty good at the high press. And what I saw, particularly in the first 15 or 20 minutes, Man City, their players kind of moved into the open spaces where there were always three or four passing options. And to me, that's like, okay, 
you can think one player does that lucky some of the time, or maybe they're really switched on, but there were literally three or four passing options, even though Arsenal was doing its level best to try to stop in the high press. And then it, and then after a while, it's like, all right, we're throwing in the towel. We're going with a back six, park the bus, right? And and Shaka and how do you pronounce his name right? El Nene. El Nene. El Nene. El Nene. Mohamed El Nene. They're just sitting in the middle there and just letting Man City just have a field day on where they wanted to pass it. <laughs> so I found it aesthetically very interesting how Man City, even though they're They've got the high press, even though they've got the parked bus, they're still, they're bossing Arsenal completely, right? It, it looked like almost like training cones is what I was telling my son, Eli, his favorite team, incidentally. Speaking of favorite teams, what was your take on it, Dre? I know you're a big, uh, big Arsenal fan. Not not really much more to, to say than what's been said. I mean, I just, I was surprised that City didn't add to the lead. I thought at some point they were going to, go on to score two and three. I mean, similarly to you, I, I wasn't watching the game yet when they scored and my sentiments were, Oh, it's going to be another one of those, another one of those days, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, it, just disappointing all around in terms of the attacking presence and at least, at least the defensive side of things that seemed to work its way out, but I never really felt like they were going to score. And that's not just on the day either. I mean, city's been phenomenal defensively as of late and um yeah, they, just another solid performance from them, I guess. They did they did what they had to do. Well, I, I'm hoping that when Partey comes back, he's going to be able to give them an option to break uh, a high press some of the time. Of course, Man City probably high presses as well as anybody in Europe right now. Um, so that's a pretty tall order, even with, with Partey coming back. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Man United, Newcastle. 3-1 win, um, pretty handy, uh, handily won by Man United. Harshal, what caught your eye in that match? The 3-1 scoreline flatters United to quite an extent. I mean, Man United to quite an extent because they were about as poor as they've been this season in the first half. Uh, there was hardly any movement of the ball. There was very little attacking threat. Um, you know, and, and it was... The midfield of Fred and Matic was really struggling to progress the ball up the field. Without uh, Pogba, I think United have struggled in the games where Pogba hasn't played to, to progress the ball upfield to, towards the likes of Fernandez and Rashford. So, first half wasn't that great. Um, although, I mean, they did step it up in the second half, scored the three goals, uh, scored the first goal, obviously, in the first half as well. But it's with United, it's it's just that they, they got the job done. They, they've got the three points, which was needed because Leicester had won and they were, I mean, this the win put them level with Leicester again. They still were 10 points behind City. So, it, uh, there's no way City are going to lose this margin and it's, it's basically a battle for second now. So, for United, I think it needs to be a case of them coming second comfortably. I would call that progress. I don't want it to be a case of, again, fighting for, for a top four spot. It, it needs to be a case of, okay, United finished second comfortably and then whoever came third was maybe five, six, seven points behind them. So that is progress and then they go on from there. But in terms of this match specifically, actually, Chris, I want to have uh, your opinion on De Gea because the, the goal that United conceded was again from a set piece 
the not the initial sort of delivery but when the ball comes back um it's on the top of the 6 yard box deha doesn't come out to claim it maguire tries to clear it sort of it's a difficult clearance he tries to does uh, tries to do and the ball falls to send maximan who's unmarked in the box and he can score multiple errors happened there but i felt that it could have been nipped in the bud if deha had shown more decisiveness and come out and claimed it and the previous game which united played which was in the europa league against uh, real sociedad Henderson was a lot more proactive in coming out, claiming deliveries and claiming crosses, and just a lot more in command of his penalty area. And that's the basic—that's one of the biggest differences between these two people. So, I mean, what I, I feel that given how vulnerable United have looked at set pieces and at defending crosses, that Henderson needs to start for United now because he can help sort of mitigate some of those issues. Whereas De Gea usually stays rooted to his uh, to his line. What What's your opinion on on this sort of uh, difference? Well, so it's physics and inertia. And before you guys go, oh, there he goes again. Let me just hit you with a couple of numbers. De Gea uh, on a good day weighs 181 pounds, assuming he doesn't have too much pasta before the match. He's six foot four, right? Harry Maguire's um, six foot four and 220 pounds. So if they go up for a ball, more times than not, Maguire's going to completely outmuscle De Gea. Now, my sense is this, though. The rules for goalkeepers in terms of protecting goalkeepers in high balls has gotten to a point where if a striker breathes the wrong way near a goalkeeper, they're going to call a foul. And if you do the math of arms raised in the air, even flat, a keeper is going to do just fine even though besides Dre, who has a 45-inch vertical for those MLS teams chatting with him, um, you know, everybody else doesn't have that big of a, a vertical leap. So I guess my point is, is that De Gea's been very deliberate about that style where he's big, but he's not very commanding for high balls. Um, let's look at Meslier, who's six foot six and 163 pounds. If you notice, he comes out a lot, and in the beginning, he was trying to catch balls, and he was getting knocked off of it. Now he's just started punching a lot more, right, and just clears it out. Of I like a goalkeeper's chances punching than a defender's chances heading, particularly if that defender's going backwards in a high-flying ball, as was served up to De Gea. So I'm inclined to agree with you that De Gea's, that's just been his M.O., to get back to the ice cream analogy, he's kind of a rocky road. And if you don't like mushroom, or sorry, if you don't like marshmallows, then you're not going to like his, his highball game. And if I were on the opposing team, I'd scout for trying to get your guys to the ball, put the ball in between the four and the six. So if McGuire is missed, at least you have a good shot because De Gea is not going to come out and, and take those balls. As far as whether Henderson deserves a slot, you know, De Gea has had opportunities to make that super special save. And I don't think he's been able to do that. So, you know, you look at the number of goals um, that they've given up, 32, um, which is fairly high, um, particularly until you get down until about sixth or seventh place where Liverpool's got 34 and Everton's got 33. So there's several teams that are doing anywhere between five uh, and seven goals better. 
So I would say if you're not pleased with Lindelof or Maguire, and I think for the most part they've done well, though you can make an argument about Lindelof. You know, you can't argue about Juan Bissaka. Uh, you could talk about team defense, right? Luke Shaw has been injured. That's okay. Then I think you need to maybe change up the keeper and give Henderson, who's frankly a little younger and dumber and cockier, and let him go be brash and do the things that, that he can do. It'll be really curious to see from a distribution perspective if he can bring another dimension because he was pretty hemmed up with Sheffield United. And from what I have seen, I do think that he has some distribution capability. So I'm sorry for such a long answer, but yes, I would like to see um, Henderson get some, um, get some time on that. And it's probably too late for the Euros, but you know, it'd just be nice to kind of give Southgate a set, force him to have a second thought about the position. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to something. Uh, last week we talked about the notion of Super League uh, versus uh, staying with the cast system that exists now. Clearly, I'll know what my my view is on on, on uh, that in terms of uh, the Premier League. What, David, would you think VAR has been under a lot? It's the dust came up. The dust has settled a little bit. If you could, if you could have an audience with the rule makers right now, what's the one thing that you would change about VAR? I think that it's the moment the way it's being used is it's looking at situations in an almost forensic way. That's the term that's been sort of chucked around quite a lot. And it's it's true. You're seeing penalty decisions take frequently, you know, over a minute, over two minutes. Sometimes you're looking at decisions taking even longer. And if it's not if it's not clear and obvious, then the decision needs to be just voided or whatever, and we move on, we play. And I think potentially you need a, a time limit. Um, I I do also have concerns on top of the time limit over whether we, whether we should be looking at too many slow motion replays as well. I think the Thomas Suchek red car was a perfect example of that where in normal speed, it was just him trying to move his arm away from the marker. And in the replay, it looked far worse. And it wasn't, it was over, overturned rightly, but that was looked at for a long, long time and they made the wrong decision. What's the time limit? Give me a number. I think 30 seconds is a good time. I think 30 seconds is enough time. Or or I tell you what, if the, the I don't mind just bringing the ref over to the side, but it needs to be, they need to go... Ref, you need to have a look at this really quickly. And you've got 30 seconds. Over he goes as a look. Nope, he's made a decision. On we go. We play on. Or, yep, that's, I've got to give a penalty or whatever it is. How would but, you feel about things like offsides, let machine learning make that decision? Because they could render that instantaneously, right? When the ball is struck and they can look at the pixels and decide almost instantly on that. Yeah. I mean, look, if it's... Uh, if it's offside, it's offside, and that's the way they're doing it. And like, fair enough. But I, personally, if I had my way, I would get rid of VAR, have goal line technology, um, and just get on with it. And maybe, maybe, ideally, a manager might have one or two challenges a game, like they have in like cricket or the NFL, the way they do it in those, in those mm-hmm. sports. But the uh, the offsides right now, it's it's minimal, it's millimeters, and I just think that's not the way. For me, it's not the way the game, like it's 
is supposed to be played. And I don't mind the odd decision going the wrong way. It happens. It happens. Okay. How about you, Dre? I agree. I agree with that last point specifically. I mean, I, I haven't known football to be so nitpicky and, and technical, um, particularly like something like offsides. I, I, think, I think if the referee goes over and you know, just uses his, what he sees as opposed to drawing all the lines across the field and whatnot. I mean, one of the things, obviously it's frustrating at times, but human error is just a part of football. And I think that you know, adds to the passion and, and, and what goes on over the course of 90 minutes. And I've always appreciated that. And obviously, you know, there are some days where it goes against you and then there are some days it works for you. And I think that's just, that's part of sport. That's part of life. You know, that, that, that's everything. So, uh, yeah, personally, I'd probably take away some of the technology involved. But other than that, I agree. Okay. How about you, Harshal? I think one thing they can definitely do is, and it's, it's not something that is not being done. Like, for example, in Australia, in the A-League, they have VAR and the uh, I, Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm getting mixed up. It's not in football, it's in rugby actually, where they have a similar sort of challenge system. And when the referee is talking to the guy sitting wherever in the video room, that conversation is being broadcast to everyone at home, probably in the stadium as well. So you can hear what the rationale is for, for the video ref, assistant referee or whoever to tell the on-pitch referee that, hey, you know what, so-and-so has happened, but you've missed this or this is what... Uh, could be a, a factor in uh, in the decision. You, uh, I recommend that you go and have a look. The referee goes over. He's also talking. He says, okay, I see this. Okay, I didn't see that, which is why I'm going to overturn my decision. Here you go. So some sort of dialogue there being made public for everyone to hear so that we know what the process is, I think will make a big difference to the way VR is being... It's just the way, just the way in which it's being... Uh, both used and the way it's being uh, accepted by the public and, and by fans because at the moment you're almost clueless as to why a certain decision has been overturned where maybe in the previous game a similar situation it was the other I mean the, the uh, where say if you would give a penalty for, some, for a particular foul in other games the same foul has gone unpunished for example so if you have that sort of clarity where the, the the entire process and the decision making process is made public during the game. I think that'll make a huge difference. I think I, I just real quick on that. I think that's a fair point as well because even in in the menu game when Rashford was fouled for the penalty, I don't think they reviewed that, which I thought was quite interesting. I just assumed they would have based on, I guess, precedent like like you're saying now. So I um, I think it would definitely be helpful to have some sort of dialogue to kind of clear that up. Uh, but I, I don't know. Like there was a which game was it? I'm trying to remember. It was two, two. I think like lower teams. Um, I'm blanking on it right now. But there was essentially there was a, there was a handball. Someone was about to be through on goal. There was a handball. Uh, the referee missed it somehow, and then VAR pulled it back like two minutes later and gave a red card for denial of a goal scoring opportunity. And I think that's, I think that was the perfect use of it and what it should be used for. Basically, is what I was getting at. I think it was Burnley and somebody else whoever they played over this past weekend. Do you think that, it, like, in terms of, let's say, cheating, it's actually stopping, it's stopping people from cheating? Because I feel like going back to sort of looking at slow motion replays and like looking at every sort of close decision in, in such detail that you see players know if they go down in the box and there is a touch, it's going to be a penalty. Like, even if it's so obvious that the touch isn't going to make someone fall over. And I just think that 
referees need to just start seeing through that because it's ridiculous. I think that there is as much cheating going on as there was beforehand. I don't think it's done anything to stop like diving or anything like that. No, I don't think it has, especially because when they go over there, I mean, if you look at anything in slow motion, it's going to look worse than it looked normal time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it would, I, for me, it was supposed to be used for something that just was not seen, but it seems to have developed into, okay, well, it looked like you kicked him. I think you might have, let me go double yeah. check. And then when you watch it in slow motion, if you're looking for him to have kicked him, then you're probably going to see that. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's I, I agree. I don't think it's it's reduced that at all. But what are you going to do? I think as well, I think that the, the refereeing in the Premier League this season has been really poor. But in fairness, this whole process must have just completely like wiped out any confidence they have in their decision-making ability. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to see how many times referees have seen something and elected not to blow their whistle, knowing that a VAR review would, would come afterwards. Well, good. Well, let's do some quick takes on uh, the upcoming weekend's matches. Of course, we've got some Champions League coming, but uh, David, just give us a quick um, soundbite on the Man City-West Ham game, one of the first matches on Saturday. Uh yeah, it's, it's could be it could be a long a long day. I don't think West Ham are going to be able to hold out like they did against Spurs. Uh, as a West Ham fan, I'm hoping Munch and Gladbach give City a really difficult midweek Champions League game. But I mean, it's at City as well, isn't it? It's not a, it's not at West Ham, so I, I would expect it to be a pretty comfortable uh, home win for for City. And I think if you look at West Ham's record against, um, I mean, let's ignore Spurs. Let's talk about sort of United and Liverpool who they've played in the last couple of months. And in those games, I think the class shone through. So uh, even though I hate to say it, I think, I, I think I'm going to go 3-0 City. Does anybody have any different, significantly different opinions on that? I want, I want score lines as well, please, guys. After we Unfortunately, had last, air, not. I just absolutely blitzed the PSG Barca game. And <laughs> Ray laughed at me. Harshell definitely raised his eyebrows. I think no, but I, I went for PSG. I went for Chris PSG. I don't even know what you guys are talking out. about. I mean, do we have this recorded, Chris? Do you remember this? I don't you know. I think we lost it. It 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 got cut in the cutting room floor. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did. Yeah, David got the scoreline right though. Yeah. All right, we'll give David when credits due. Though uh, I I think Dre and I's recollections may be a little <laughs> off. Okay. Um. We've got West Brom and Brighton playing. Uh, it's going to be important in terms of relegation battle. Leeds Aston Villa, um, mid midday US, uh, six thirty uh, uh, London time. Leeds Aston Villa again. Uh, Leicester Arsenal, uh, which is the early Sunday morning match or Sunday afternoon uh, for those in London. Um, Dre, what's your what's your quick take on Leicester? versus Arsenal. I don't know. I always I always seem to sense a, a draw from this fixture. I'm really not sure why. Um but I think based on Leicester's current form, I, they probably win the game. Mm. What does Arsenal have to do to win that game? <laughs> Play better. <laughs> <laughs> I like how scientific you are as a player on that. So uh, Yeah, I mean I, they've I, I think one of the things that that I've struggled with and it's gotten better it's just getting numbers forward in and around the box uh just to capitalize on on, on the opportunities they have 
but yeah, I think I think just just going forward, creating more opportunities and then more clear cut opportunities and taking advantage of those. Score line? Um, probably, uh, I'll say 2 0, Lester. I'm going to go 1 1. Um, I think probably 2 1 to Lester. Same score lines. I'll go 1 0, Lester. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Harshal, give us your take on Chelsea Man United. What's going to happen there? Be an interesting one. Um, could potentially be one that sort of plays into United's hands in the sense that Tuchel, under Tuchel, Chelsea have monopolized possession in, more, in all their all the games they've played so far. And United, obviously, although they've gotten better at playing with the ball, they are much better at counter-attacking. So this could actually be one where, again, depends on certain players playing well, obviously, for United more than Chelsea because uh, it's just the way that the, the two teams are at the moment. But I feel that this could play into United's hand and United might be able to sneak a win. But Chelsea haven't really conceded too many goals under Tuchel, so it'll be difficult. In terms of the scoreline, I don't. It'll probably be a one-nil game. I don't know which way. As a United fan, I'm going to say United, but it pro- it might just be a one-nil game, though. David, scoreline, please. I'll be really boring and say nil-nil. Trey, to no Chelsea. Sorry, ah. I- I'm going to go one-one. I mean, the way I look at this weekend, I'm going to watch Man City because they're exciting to watch. I'm going to watch them, you know, pull apart West Ham. I'm going to watch Leeds play against whatever team because Leeds always has an exciting game. And if Aston Villa doesn't have Jack Grealish, who could be out for a month, then they could really um, drive it in. And then I'm worried that Leicester Arsenal is going to be a, a dull draw and so is Chelsea Man United. I hope those Sunday fixtures are more interesting. Um, but for now, guys, we should probably leave it here. Uh we are sponsored by the Premier League Guide, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis Plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia and on Amazon. Please subscribe to Thinking Fan FC on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. For now, Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Ciao Ciao. 